Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hey, Barry, good morning. How you doing? Good morning, Michael. How are you doing today? I am approaching this with both optimism and trepidation. <laughs> we are... That's our constant state of being, though, isn't it? That's our constant state of being. Optimism yet trepidation. Yeah, I like yeah. That. I'm that could be our motto. It could be. <laughs> our, tri- our Twitter handle. I don't want a Twitter handle. Yeah. Uh, anyways, so uh, we're back. This is round two of the Horkheimer and Adorno experiment that we are calling the die, or they called the dialectic of enlightenment, and we are going through. So today, the plan yeah. is to talk about Odysseus, and uh, you and I have decided that rather than try and handle the entire chapter, what we're going to do is discuss uh, Odysseus as enlightenment man. Um, through three specific points, right? We're going to look mm-hmm. at uh, Circe, the Cyclops, mm-hmm. and then his return home and the uh, encounter with the suitors. So right. uh, we're going to talk about those three things. And then ideally we will stop and take a look at, you know, how this looks in 1940s. Um, when they're writing, when it right. And, and then drafting the dialectic of a line right and then probably and i guess try and uh take a stab at seeing how well uh odysseus's enlightenment man uh works now right so um let's i guess let's jump in if you're ready if you got anything to add or shall we no i think we can jump in i i guess we should say should i say just a little brief bit maybe i I can talk briefly about what we're not talking about i think so Okay, um, so there's a long, you know, we're, we're having to be, we're um, silly enough or foolish enough or whatever we are enough to to talk about, um, uh, we're, we're, and I think we're kind of committed and kind of jazzed about the idea of using this as our first extended discussion of an extended work, right? Mm-hmm. A multi-part episode, multi-part podcast that discusses a longer work in depth. So, but necessarily, even to do this, um, there are so, uh, this book is so rich in ideas that we have to, as Michael said, touch down at a couple places. And so we're going to touch down at a couple scenes, a couple key scenes that we, from the Odyssey, that we think that if we discuss their interpretation, the Adorno-Horkheimer interpretation of these particular episodes in the Odyssey, we're going to give some insight, hopefully, into um, the Adorno-Horkheimer framework and their arguments about enlightenment and mythology. Um, So just a brief word about what we're not talking about, since we'll mostly be focusing on the plot and and the Adorno-Horkheimer interpretation of the plot events of the narrative of the Odyssey. There is a long excursus about sacrifice that I'm gonna to try to summarize very quickly. Um, there's a long excursus about sacrifice and, and, and rather than talk, and it's fascinating, uh, but rather than deal with it here, unless unless viewers and listeners feel that this is you know worth its own particular podcast, in which case we'll do it, but only if you prompt us. But just to give a kind of quick summarize, because it's a pretty large part of the chapter. Um, the function of this larger, um, the function of this larger discussion of how sacrifice and ritual work in the 
Homeric age, but also in the pre-Homeric age, the function seems to be this. It corresponds with this part of the argument that Michael and I discussed last week. There's a dual project going on in the dialectic of enlightenment. First and foremost, I don't know if it's first and foremost, but it's definitely primary, is this argument that we are going to be talking about more today about how enlightenment undoes itself, how the enlightenment project and how enlightenment heroism in this particular case, how enlightenment heroism contains its own mythic, barbaric, uncivilized, however you describe it, element. So that enlightenment, what Adorno and Horkheimer are trying to do is detach the notion of enlightenment from automatic progress and linear linear progress toward a greater state of civilization or reason. Okay, there's that. But the other part of their project is to say, hey, you know what? Enlightenment is always ragging on with, bagging on myth. Uh, but when you look at it, when you look at myth more closely, myth and ritual, and even, they argue, sacrifice, has a logical structure that looks a lot like enlightenment. In fact, in particular, and this is the setup for the chapter, I'm, all, I'm almost done with it yeah, because I want to get to the episode. But the setup for the chapter is very congruent. I'm mentioning it because it's really congruent with their project in the book, which is to say that we kind of misunderstand enlightenment, especially when we understand enlightenment as a thing and not as a process. We tend to overlook the fact that enlightenment, there is no automatic link between enlightenment and process and progress. That said... Uh, another problem with fetishizing enlightenment is that we lose or miss or overlook the rational elements to even something that looks irrational, like sacrifice. So bring it to a close. They discuss Odysseus in specific relation to this. This is how they begin their chapter. It's very congruent with the consonant with their, their project. We're going to talk about the, the second prong of their argument, but they're, they're true to their argument, and they open up the chapter by saying, hey, look, ritual and sacrifice, it looks as if it's pre-rational, that it doesn't belong to, say, rational modes of thought, including economic exchange. But take a look at Odyssey, Odysseus, rather, in the Iliad, and, and also in the Odyssey. Odysseus is trying to gain. He doesn't believe in rituals, except he knows how to exploit them. And he uses ritual as an enlightenment man. And we're going to talk about what that means. But it, he uses ritual as an enlightenment man would. He's trying to game it. He's calculating. And their point in the first part of the chapter, Adorno Horkheimer's point, is there, as they will do throughout the, the larger project, they want to underscore that, hey, you know what? We misunderstood enlightenment. We also misunderstand mythology in the ritual world, in the sacrificial world. There's an element of enlightenment that's kind of latent in the pre-Homeric world. Okay. So you, you bring up an interesting question for me that I hadn't considered before um, that I want to just take a second mm -hmm. to, to poke at because I think that if I'm hearing you properly, um, this is an interesting sort of consolidation of the arguments. So 
In, the, um, in this excursus, you're saying in this excursus, there's a way in which the chat. Yeah, I think. The yeah, I, I think so. I think so. So, so right. this 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 distinction about a pre-rational state and the misunderstanding that enlightenment and myth, the 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 the, the basically the argument that those two are distinct or distinct different in some way right. is, is problematic, but. As, as it relates to Odysseus and his uh, journey, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not so much his journey as it relates to Odysseus and the navigation of his journey. And mm -hmm. so we've we've identified three moments that, that we're going to talk about in, in, in particular. But uh, I, I think it's interesting to maybe. I, I want to see if I understand you properly. Odysseus, Odysseus excuse me, is the embodiment of enlightened man right like he is cunning he is insightful he is able to think his way he's calculating calculating his, insi his insight and his rationality is, but, is but almost you, the same as calculation but right? you you said something really interesting there and i think that you, you said that he uses ritual yeah. and yeah myth, yeah right i think and, that's and, right. and, and so to me um, I, I think is is that Horkheimer and Adorno making a move to uh, clarify the argument that these are not two distinct perceptive or perceptive place or not perceptive. What am I saying? That these are two different ideological well, positions. Yeah, yeah, that, modes of that, thought. Yeah, no, you got it. So, yeah. so the argument here is that Odysseus, as enlightened man, is yes. able to leverage myth and ritual. As... Love that verb. That's the exact verb. I think that's okay. Right so I, I think yeah. I think that that's that's a really helpful sort of foundation to to use because we're going to talk about all of the ways in which Odysseus is enlightened, understanding that his ability to behave as enlightened man is due largely to the fact that he can still, yeah. uh, you know, traverse in in the currency of myth. Exactly. Right. Well, well, very well put. A final point on this, because yeah. it segue, it segues uh, very nicely into our discussion of the supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, so remember, you know, there, uh, I don't think Adorno Horkheimer believed in an actual person named Homer, but there, you know, there were, there were Homeric storytellers, mm -hmm. but key to key to their reading is that it isn't just Odysseus who's calculating. Key to their understanding that the Homeric bards kind of had this, um, whoever they were, they had this insight that is attributed to Is Odysseus that um, that the rich that ritual can be gained, can be leveraged. Crucial to that is that it isn't just this is one of the most fascinating things in the first part of the chapter. It isn't just Odysseus who, you know, Dorno and Horkheimer are very clear. They say, look at how Odysseus navigates, to use your verb. That's that's the operative verb. Look at how he navigates the landscape. Interestingly enough, they note, who's the presiding god? I guess there are two major gods who are involved in the, in the Odyssey. There's Athena who's presenting, who's presiding over and protecting uh, right and the other one is Poseidon mm -hmm. and and their characterization Adorno Horkheimer's characterization of Poseidon in the novel 
in the in the uh, epic poem is really key because they say, yeah, Odysseus is calculating, but that if you look at Poseidon and how the god interacts with um, how the god interacts with Odysseus, he's a sailor too. He's calculating. He just wants his reward. He wants his tribute. There is no sort of like supernatural, idealistic, uh, moralistic um, um, uh, patina or coloring to Poseidon. He's a gamer too. So he's a he's a sailor writ large. He's a calculating like Odysseus. He's a navigate. I mean, god of the seas. But what's his mentality? Not necessarily a divine. Not something that a sailor wouldn't recognize. He's calculating too. So. This idea that ritual can be gamed isn't just attributed to the Enlightenment hero. The gods know it too. In the case of Poseidon, now I think it's more complicated and we'll probably, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about this. I think it's more complicated with Athena. But mm -hmm. with Poseidon, their point is, look at the Poseidon character and how he's represented. He's definitely, he's up for the game. He He's ready and there, he's ready to be leveraged. Mm -hmm. Odysseus knows how to leverage him. He's there. He's ready to be leveraged. He doesn't want higher tribute. Okay, so we're going to, you know, in looking at Odysseus as Enlightenment Man, we're going to focus on three of the encounters. Um, there were more, obviously. It was a toss-up whether or not to include the sirens, but sirens, right. the, the sacrifices must be made. So uh, we're going to start with Circe. And uh, why don't you start us off? Well, I'll start us off, but actually, why don't I include the sirens in here as well? Because the reason why we weren't going to talk about the sirens specifically, and we felt that Circe would do for our purposes, is because both characters, in the case of the sirens, what's dangerous, quote unquote, to the narrative, um, what's dangerous to Odysseus in the narrative, is the siren song. What does the siren song do? What is arts danger within this particular within the particular economy of the text the danger is enlightenment man the problem is uh enlightenment man has a purpose and the enlightenment man the enlightenment hero must stick to their purpose it their their consistency and determination is what determines their heroism that depends you know that's the qualification or I guess the prerequisite for being recognized as heroic. They have to maintain a kind of monomaniacal commitment to mm -hmm. self-preservation and self-interest, to self-interest, but also this kind of self-preservation. The manic focus, the monomaniacal focus on on goal on achieving your goals is one of is dark side of enlightenment for Adorno and Horkheimer. So within that context, and Odysseus represents that. So within this context, we can talk about both the sirens and Circe. In a sense, these very different characters, they present us a, they present Odysseus a particular problem in that in one case, the siren song, art in other words, mm -hmm. uh, encourages Odysseus to stop what he's doing and do nothing and do nothing. And the charm of the not just Circe, but also of the Lotus. Yeah. Well, it's it's not so much that it, it's it's not that you arguably, yes, do nothing, but it, it's not even do nothing. It's 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 look 
to the past and, and and do, and yeah. dwell in the past. So right. it's it's no, not right. so. So my question, because I think that this is really key to the discussion of Cersei, mm-hmm. is it's not so much. It's two things. It's one that art keeps us from moving forward in the sirens case in the siren song but it does so by actually pulling us backwards. backwards. I mean, it does not lure Odysseus into a stupor. It doesn't make him indifferent. It would drive him to actively seek the past, which is yeah. contra to the enlightenment job of moving forward. Progressing, right. Progressing, right? right. In right. a linear fashion. Uh, no, no, that's a, that's a great distinction. It's a particular kind of art is a particular kind of narcotic, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to talk. I mean, the Lotus Eaters, quite literally a narcotic episode. Cersei, in the sense of stop the forward movement and just stay sexually satisfied. You know, mired, mired, that would be the, the, the logic of the text. That you're mired and chained to your desire, which keeps you chained to the moment, right? Mm-hmm. That's the. That's the particular kind of constraint. But it's disease. Yeah. But but it's still a return to something. It's never moving forward. Well, you make me uh, you make me question that. I I, I was thinking that you, that you make me question that, Michael, with your remark because I thought and I I like this idea. Um, I thought you were saying you know these are the same, and the reason why we mostly wanted to talk about Cersei's we felt that by talking about the Cersei episode we were kind of talking about these other episodes mm-hmm. and, and the Adorno-Horkheimer argument about these separate episodes. That said, I, I very much like your point that there is something distinct about art in a sense that, that um, Odysseus, I'm sorry, Homer tags art in a very specific way and Adorno and Horkheimer are sensitive to this. So uh, let me see if I can do this quickly. Lotus Eaters, it's about, being enchained or imprisoned, not able to move forward because you're in the moment. Um, Circe, you're so involved in your own pleasure that the, the male is so involved in male pleasure that he cannot move forward. Yes, you're, I, I, I thought this was a great point you were making. Yes, the, 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 the problem of the siren songs, the problem posed by art is that it hinders forward movement. But with art, I think there is something different, right? It's this idea that you're mentally kind of pushed back to the past mm-hmm. and that you're mentally regressing. You're regressing in a kind of specifically different way. And does that make any sense? I thought that was kind of behind your comment. That well, art, it, it, there's something a little bit distinct about what happens with a siren as opposed to a Circean. I, I think there is a distinction, but both of them challenge or frustrate the enlightenment mission of moving forward i think the question is which do they do so to me the siren song is a return a reflection i i think there's there, there's there's a conscious pull to it it is not pull a to state, the past. pull to the past pull to the past whereas i think that if you look at cersei that to me that's hedonism. That's 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 yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's, yeah, that's dwelling in this moment. Um, it so that art still does something. I think art is dangerous to enlightenment in a way that is different. Yeah, than just um, you know self gratification or or uh, it, it's a different it's a different engagement. And I think that it's interesting because the 
siren song, the art prompts a more violent response. Yes, right, right. He has to be physically bound. Right. So did you want to take a look at the text so we can? Uh, well, it just there's just a kind of, I, I was thinking we could wrap up. Uh, I, I, I only have a sentence that I would refer, refer our readers and listeners to. Okay. Or our listeners and uh, viewers to. Uh, that, that I think kind of sums up the discussion. I very much like the fact that you brought up that important distinction. We are mm -hmm. conflating. We were making a conflation for time's sake and economy's sake, but your distinction is a very important one. And I'm glad I'm glad we, we got that in there. So the, the key sentence among, you know, in, you know, that we feel kind of uh, tags this or brings this, this punctuates this argument is that, um, is an aside um, or is a brief statement that Adorno and Horkheimer make on page four, I believe it's on page 49, is that correct? Mm -hmm. of, the, of the Stanford edition of the Dialectic of Enlightenment. Self-preserve, and this is in specific relation to Circe, mm -hmm. but in a way, in a qualified way, it can stand for um, an explanation of the, of the uh, Sirens episode, but also the Lotus Eaters episode. So... Here's the line. Self-preserving reason, as embodied in Odysseus, cannot permit itself an idyll. It can't permit itself a rest or a moment of stasis. It can't go back and it can't linger in the moment. Right, we, he, must, in, we must continually march forward. Shall we march forward to the side? No, I'm sorry. You, if you want to finish it, uh, no, that was okay. It. That's my that was my flourish finish. So I'm ready to go to Cyclops. Yeah. Well, I think so. Let's let's just pause for one second. And say that the yeah. in terms of Odysseus as Enlightenment man, and the um the the, the distinction between myth and Enlightenment. Yes. The takeaway from Circe is that. And, and the sirens, as we had talked about, is is that their enlightenment thinking does not allow for a pause, and it certainly will not allow for regression. Regression, right? Right. That, that and so the and and Odysseus's ability to resist these, his cunning is a display of, you know. I get, what would you say thinking right um just, right, right. enlightenment thinking enlightenment right. thinking um but he is able because he is versed in myth he no, knows how to resist these so you see there yeah, the, yeah, the, nice. the interweaving of myth and enlightenment thing he 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 fills dual capacities there that's a great additional insight there your last point uh what was the word you used I, I, that I also want to underscore because it's the perfect word. Um, just a, a brief elaboration on on the. Uh, you said this perfectly. I'll just add a little Philip to it. Um, Homer Homer presents the move back to the past, a dwelling in the past, even if it's embodied in art. Right? There's no sense that art is a separate practice from everyday life. If art embodies a look backwards in this novel the enlightenment cast of this novel character of this i'm sorry not novel but epic poem although there are many novelistic episodes i mean this is an epic poem that mm -hmm. really does read like a novel for interesting reasons but um 
Homer seems to be a pains, the Homer poets seem to be a pains to present the moment of looking looking backwards as a regressive moment, as a, like looking backwards can only be within this enlightenment scheme. Tantum, it's tantamount to regression. Right. The ne- it's a negative process. It seems to be, it's presented as uniformly negative. How's it uniformly negative? It's always, as you say, regressive. Mm-hmm. All right. So onwards to the Cyclops, onwards and, to the Cyclops. and barbarism. Uh, and and maybe am I am I wrong to say, or uh, is it too presumptuous or pretentious to say this is kind of a simple bit of their argument? Um, here's the key quote on page fifty one in the uh, Stanford text: "The Cyclops are fierce." I'm not even going to read the whole sentence. I'm just going to read this cap of the the first part of the sentence from Adorno and Horkheimer. The Cyclops. This is a quote. Part of this is a quote from Homer. The Cyclops are fierce, uncivilized people. And Adorno and Horkheimer go on to say, well, wait a minute, uncivilized people? What's what's uncivilized about it? What does that mean? That means they're regressive and true to form, true to the character, the alignment character of the Odyssey. Uncivilized means you're backwards. Compared to what? Well, these people don't work. Mm -hmm. Cyclops don't work. They don't cultivate. So compared to up-to-date modernity, enlightenment modernity of agricultural modernity, they have to be, they have to be, they are stereotyped. They have inevitably have the character. They're inevitably presented as fierce, uncivilized people. So if you actually, I want to expand upon this quote just a bit because I think that you have sort of built in a nice little bridge from Circe to this in terms of, again, um, following the path of enlightenment here. Just before that line, he says, for Homer, the definition of barbarism coincides with that of a state in which there's no systemic agriculture, therefore therefore, no systemic time-managing organization of work and society has yet been achieved. So for him, as you you said, thank you very much for reading that. That's crucial. So for him, as you said, barbarism is unstructured, but it is unstructured in ways that don't maximize the efficiency of work. And so, in other words, it's idle. It's 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 idle. And the problem with Cersei is that. Idle. It's she that presents an idle in his heroic progressive journey. Right. So um there you go. <laughs> There's the Cyclops in 30 seconds. Well, that's what I meant by simple. I mean, once <clears throat> you catch your logic, it's very, you know, it, it's it's hard to argue against, right? It is, but again, you see here it, uh, in in this in in this moment, how does you know uh, Odysseus's overcoming of um the challenge to uh, enlightenment relies upon his cunning and his ability to understand the limits of myth. In fact, there's an interesting sort of the side the the side bit to this is you know he he said what was it no man oh sure uh, right so he introduces himself as no man but then he ultimately screws himself because he can't bear the thought of not taking credit 
for overcoming. I want you to know it was me. That's it. That's so, 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 so I wonder if this is obviously not something uh, that, that necessarily fits this discussion, but the role of ego here, you know, the, the desire to elevate oneself and the cost of that, I, I think well, is, and isn't that, you know, that's the underside of the heroic idea is that you end up elevating an individual ego when you say it's a hero. Right. You encourage that person. That's the return to myth. That's right. Return, and, and that's the return to myth. That's brilliant. Yeah. And, that, and, brilliant and, and, and we punish that yeah. with a few more years at sea sailing in circles. And this is what you get. So, um, which he again, still manages to overcome. So yes, I think there we go. There's the Cyclops in a nutshell. Well, um, well shall we? Yeah. Wonderful. I, I love that last comment that you added. Um, well, let's just go to what I think is the most brilliant reading of all because, and I say most brilliant reading because it's been a while since I've read the Odyssey, I would say at least 10 years. I think mm -hmm. I had to reread it for some other purposes, but it's been at least a decade. Um, but this is to me, the most brilliant, um, this is the most brilliant of their readings, uh, Adorno and I'm <clears throat> grateful to Adorno and Horkheimer for revealing to me how deeply creepy and disturbing and underscoring the horrific violence of Odysseus's homecoming, mm -hmm. which is really the final part of this particular excursus of this particular chapter. They note, hey, take a look at what Odysseus does when he gets back. It's all about not just retain, returning to his wife, but it necessarily encourage it necessarily scores have to be settled. Scores have to be settled. Justice has to be measured out. Calculate revenge must be calculated and absolute. In other words, what does Odysseus do? He brings enlightenment war, enlightenment man, you know, enlightenment carnage back to, back home. He brings war back home. And what specifically is allowing, I think, I would argue, what's, um, I, I think I would argue that Adorno and Horkheimer's point is Enlightenment hero, the Enlightenment hero, uh, definitely it's fun to read about their exploits when they're not at home. <laughs> when they get home, yeah, you want them to get home, obviously. This whole novel, is a no, I keep on calling it a novel, but you know, the right. whole epic poem <sighs> is about this moment of closure. But what Adorno and Horkheimer remind us, or at least remind readers who are too stupid when they read this to notice it, is how bloody and how violent, uh, how it is, homecoming is. And in a way, and I think their larger point is. Uh, the violence that was inherent, I, I would say it's covert, but it's actually pretty it's explicit and yeah. it's pretty overt elsewhere. But it continues in another overt, it continues overtly and clearly in the last, um, in the, you know, the, the episode that brings the epic poem to closure. So I'll just read um, the chilling sentences. Uh, Adorno and Horkheimer get full chill on this bit, right? They're They're brutal. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to capture and remind the reader, like I said, readers like me, who are too obtuse to really process this. They're reminding us of the sheer brutality 
uh, of Odysseus' return, that it's, it's as if the, the bloodshed of war has to continue in the home front. So um, these are, do, do you want to read this passage on 61 if you have it there? Or I can I can start reading it, but I, I think. Uh, go ahead, go ahead, okay. if you've got it in front of you. Well, I, I have uh, I have part of it in front of me. I don't have the full bit, but I'll try and I'll try and wing it. Um, Adorno and Horkheimer note the fate of the winged ringed hang hang victims. The fate of the hang victims is described and expressionlessly compared in the Homeric text to the death of birds. So the you know, dead bodies, dead birds, all the same. Hang victims, dead birds, all the same in Homer's scale. Um, and imply, you know, um, in the implied scale uh, of the epic poem. And Ordorno and Horkheimer also notice, um, also describe this part of the text uh, as having the, quote, the coldness of anatomy. These descriptions are given with, quote, the coldness of an anatomy and a vivisection. So they're foregrounding, I guess, the violence inherent in Odysseus's epic heroism. In case we missed it. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So here's here's the question for you. Um, to step backwards for a second, that we might step forward with purpose. Mm-hmm. With oh, nice, nice. You like that? Yeah, you like I that? love that. Yeah. And sitting Let's on that do one. that. So Let's do that. In with the Cyclops, we understand barbarism to be a certain lack of um I don't what's the word I want to use here? A lack well, they of, don't want to work. Uh, well, they a lack of work. but it's not that they don't want to work, it's a lack of organization that sure. can right. that can right. measure work, that sure. can structure. So it's a lack of structure, we'll say both time structure, which delineates the work time. Right. And then a sort of um, sophisticated, what's the word? Um, My God, words are hard. Um, A a technical sophistication, which then can maximize work. Right. So if, if, and, and, and uh, part and parcel of that is a reliance upon myth, right? The, the belief that the supernatural will take care of our needs. So if that's the barbarism inherent in Mm -hmm the cyclops who is our mm-hmm. emblem of non-enlightenment man which odysseus handily triumphs over mm-hmm. how do you understand violence as a part of enlightenment thinking is this simply the uh you know aggressive takeover of you know the return home is the return to myth is the return to the pre-enlightened state and we must dominate that or how do you see this as that? Or do you see, like, I'm, I'm trying to situate the enlightenment, the violence of the enlightenment, because right. that's, right. that's, that's counter to how we would normally think of it. And I can think of certain contemporary instances hmm. where there is a violent component to it, but that violence is almost always justified as a necessary means of banishing as, myth. As reason. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it sounds like you have your own. I'll tell you my, I'll, I'll answer just purely 
my answer will be only my answer. Uh, I sent, and I mentioned that because, and that's obviously, that's stating the obvious, but uh, I say it that way because I sense you're moving toward an alternative interpretation and I want to hear it, but I'll tell you how I read what happens at the end. Um, I think uh, my reading of Adorno Horkheimer's reading of the end is that the end of the Odyssey is yet another example. I, I think what they're... Uh, I think their point, their point about the extreme coldness, vivisection, the extreme violence, and the extreme coldness with which Homer describes the violence, when its violence wreaked by the Enlightenment hero on characters who are undeserving, right, and who within the moral schema of the poem are found undeserving. I think. My reading of this, you know, and, and I guess my interpretation of Adorno Horkheimer's argument here is this, that the conclusion is of a piece with everything you saw. And now to more directly with everything we've seen previous to the conclusion and to di directly answer your question, I think Adorno Horkheimer's big takeaway in the Odyssey is this, and they feel the Odyssey is wholly consistent on this point. From beginning to end, Odysseus is rational and calculated. And what that means, so that's what makes him an Enlightenment hero, as we've discussed. Okay, there's a second thing they want to say about that. The second descriptor they want to say about that. Okay, if Odysseus is a true Enlightenment hero who navigates, literally navigates his journey, using reason, calculation, all these things, trying to game the system. He's inherently violent in all. He, he has a combative, aggressive, inherently violent attitude to the world that sometimes spills out in real kick-ass violence, as it does here. But even where it doesn't, and also with uh, the poor, with poor Cyclops, right? Uh, but even where he's not overtly violent, even where there are not hanged victims that are expressed and described with the, quote, coldness of an anatomy or vivisection, even when that's not happening, it's on the verge of happening. It's mm -hmm. possible to happen. It's implicit in the logic. It's part of the logic of his behavior and his rationale of this mindset 24-7. Violence is always around the corner. I think that's my interpretation of what's going on and how. Yeah. 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 It sounded like you had a different one, though. So, no, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know that it's different so much. I think that if you look at every encounter that Odysseus has that he must overcome, there is no negotiation. Right. Right. These, well, yeah, these, yeah, these, so, yeah. so, so overcoming is akin to dominating. And I think that and sometimes sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not. Right. But 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 domination is going to involve some right. sort of violent resistance. And so I'm trying to piece this together. I think that, you know, his the 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 bloodshed at the end of this is mm -hmm. calculated and surgical. Oh, absolutely. Right, and right, what right. is he doing? He is going after the indolent and the hedonistic that have been camping at his house 
trying to seduce his wife and indulging in carnal pleasure. And they're eating up his food. They're and also you get like, the hell out of my reserves. refrigerator. This is what <laughs> happens. But that's the point, right? He is that what, how get are, out of my fridge? I bought these groceries. <laughs> my food. That, but I think that's the point, right? Like, what are these people doing that is emblematic of enlightenment? Nothing. And this is, I think, very much a case of if you're not a part of this program, you are going to be paved under by this program. So is that, is that, is that, is that, I think it's totally, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was gonna say, I think, I think that's how I read violence as a part of the enlightenment process is that you are in the way. And if we're after, if we're after efficiency, if we're after calculation, you don't, you don't reason with inefficiency. You Mm -hmm. simply fix it. And that's Mm -hmm. what he's, 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 he's fixed his little problem. He's fixed his problem. Yeah. And he's a, he's a problem solver that it is. <laughs> Let me tell um, you right here. The um, fixer. I, I, he's the fixer. He's a fixer. Um, you know, um, that's a wonderful point. I have nothing to add to it. All right. Well, Barry, uh, I think that this was, well, what can I say? On- onward to Juliet next time. <laughs> onward to the Marquis de Sade. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll bring, um, I'll bring whips and chains, you know, I'll have them in the background. So, to... and I'll be grateful that these are done via Zoom. <laughs> that we have, uh, Zoom. <laughs> so, you have okay. Zoom protection. It's all well, good. well, Take thank care. you. Thank you as always. And uh, again, uh, to those thank of you, you listening Michael. and watching, uh, like, subscribe, comment, engage, and uh, thank you. We'll, we'll do this again soon. Thank you very much, Michael. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.